0: Let's turn together in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, as we will consider this evening verses 14 through 16a, the first portion of verse 16 Before we read the Word of God, let us go to the God of the Word in prayer. O oh, great God, as we have just sung, we would see Jesus Christ, the living and life giving Savior, in this, the pages of his God breathed Word, that in seeing him, we would be made like him, conformed to his glorious image. Be at work now in the reading and the preaching of your Word for your glory. And the growth of your church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. The opening of Philippians chapter 2 is a high point in special revelation. The incomprehensible glory of God the Son, the second person of the blessed Trinity, did not count His full deity as a reason for selfishness, Rather, he humbled himself. Coming from the glorious riches of heaven to the sin-cursed poverty of earth, he took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul to become a curse for us in our place upon the cross. He did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility he counted sinners more significant than himself. But Christ is no longer in the tomb under the power of death, For his humility and his work in his humiliation, God the Father has highly exalted Jesus Christ to heavenly glory and joy as his rightful reward for his obedience. Jesus Christ no longer lives in weakness subject to death. He is the risen and ascended Savior, the Son of God who lives by the power of an indestructible life. He is the heaven-enthroned, second and last Adam, whom we are obligated to confess as Lord, and before whom we are obligated to bow in humble adoration as his willing slaves. The Apostle Paul helps us to see the implications of Christ's lordship here in Philippians 2. This middle section from about verses 12 through 18 shows us what the obedience of faith looks like now that Jesus Christ has accomplished redemption and has been exalted to heavenly glory. This middle section of Philippians 2 is a call to obedience and sanctification. In addition to the opening hymn of praise to Christ, in verses 1 through 11, verses 12 and 13 of this chapter are another sort of high point of special revelation. As Paul moves on in chapter 2, he goes from the deity, humanity, humiliation, and exaltation of Jesus Christ to the sanctification of the Christian. And even though Paul changes topics, as he moves through the letter here, he keeps mystery central. The glorious mystery of the person and work of Jesus Christ leads us to the glorious mystery of sanctification. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you, verses 12 and 13. Believers, sanctification is God's work in you. More and more, your remaining corruption is mortified and removed, your sinful affections and desires are weakened, and more and more, you mature, you grow in grace and in whole person devotion and commitment to Jesus Christ. Sanctification is God's work in us. And just for that reason, sanctification is also our work. You go to work, believer, because God is at work in you. I must put my sin to death and make use of the means of grace, the reading and preaching of the word, the sacraments, prayer, Christian fellowship. And the only reason I'm able to do that is because God is at work in me, transforming me, conforming me into the image of Jesus Christ. Putting it all together, Richard Gaffin says, sanctification is 100% the work of God. And just for that reason, it is to engage 100% of the activity of the believer. And as we move in Philippians 2 from the mystery of Christ's person and work to the mystery of sanctification, we are confronted by things too marvelous for man, things only God fully comprehends, things you and I are to receive and practice in childlike trust and obedience. And here in our passage now in verses 14 through the beginning of verse 16, Paul gets more specific about sanctification. What are some of the particulars of sanctification? What does sanctification look like in more detail? In American Christianity, there is a tendency to prize the dramatic and the exceptional to the exclusion of the ordinary and the everyday in the life of the believer. If you don't have an Oscar-worthy conversion story, or if you don't experience gazelle-like leaps in the Christian life, there's something wrong with you. That is not how Paul presents sanctification. That's not how he begins his detailing of sanctification here. The way in which the God-breathed Scripture moves from an overview of sanctification, verses 12 and 13, to the specifics of sanctification, verses 14 onward, shows us that the believer's life is not judged in the court of human opinion or measured by personal well-being or social impact, Rather, the believer's life takes place, body and soul, in thought, word and deed, before the face of God, before whom we are open and exposed, from whom we cannot hide, and to whom we must give account. Paul gets into some of the specifics of sanctification right off the bat by dealing with something that may or may not be a high priority for the state, for the culture, for the family, or even for the church. But the believer's concern is not with what works or what tests well. The believer's concern is every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what does sanctification look like in more detail? That leads us to verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The very first thing that Holy Scripture records here. For what sanctification should look like in particular is that we must be watchful over our words. Grumbling, complaining, arguing, sanctification involves putting these sins of the tongue to death. Again, these are the necessary God-breathed implications that Paul draws for God's people now that Jesus Christ has accomplished redemption in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The Christian life is to be marked by confessing Christ's indestructible lordship, verse 11, not by complaining and an opinionated spirit, verse 14. Here is a universal negative command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The command there in verse 14, do, is in the present tense, meaning that this is to be a continuing, ongoing thing for the believer, an aspect of his new identity in Christ. To paraphrase, avoid grumbling and disputing again and again, over and over. Grumbling here is complaining, not being satisfied with what God has ordered and provided. It is behind-the-scenes talk, as one dictionary puts it. But of course, No creature is hidden from the sight of God, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account, Hebrews 4.13. This is not merely an individual issue. As Paul writes to the Philippian church, he is in part addressing the prideful conflict going on in that congregation, and so he goes on to mention disputing there in verse 14. Disputing here is going back and forth on difference of opinion to the point of threatening Christian unity in Christ's body, the church. It is insisting on so-called rights to the neglect of humble service. It is asserting yourself as great and insisting that you be recognized as such rather than counting your fellow believer more significant than yourself. Grumbling and disputing has been a problem long before the advent of the Philippian church. It has been a problem for God's people for centuries, if not millennia. Think back to the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness. As they were traveling through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they grumbled and complained. Israel was sustained in part by God's provision of manna throughout their pilgrimage. Throughout their earthly pilgrimage, God supernaturally, graciously provided Life giving nourishment for his people as they wandered through the desert. He gave them enough manna to live each and every day, enough each day and twice before the Sabbath day. What an amazing display of God's power that he would not be hindered by the lack of resources in the arid desert and could provide for his people all that they would need of himself. What an amazing display of God's provision. That he would not leave his people to die in the wilderness, but that he would carry them through that hard journey throughout the wilderness from Egypt to Sinai to Canaan, giving them manna in the meantime before they arrived at the land flowing with milk and honey. What an amazing display of God's glory in this supernatural, gracious provision. The only response to that amazing, gracious, supernatural provision is nothing less than gratitude. But instead, God's people did the opposite. They grumbled and complained. Think about how some of God's people complained about the manna in Numbers chapter 11. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Think about what is going on there. To look back upon the demonic, enslaving power of Egypt through rose-colored glasses merely because the menu was better is ridiculous. But more than that, Israel's complaint in the wilderness is a profound blasphemy against God's gracious provision and an insistence that they deserve more. Many of the grumbling Israelites fail to appreciate the glory of the exodus they experienced. They failed to see what Moses saw. Hebrews eleven twenty four and following, "...by faith Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward." Because the manna in the wilderness came from the generous hand of Israel's covenant Lord, it was a far more lavish feast than anything Egypt had to offer. It was far better to be in the arid wilderness with God than to be in the luxury of Egypt far from him. It was far better to have witnessed the mighty hand and outstretched arm of Yahweh as he redeemed his people from slavery and destroyed their enemies. It was far better to taste and see God's husbandly love as he made Israel his special possession out of all the nations of the earth. Israel seems to have forgotten that it is better to be in the wilderness with God eating just manna than to be in Egypt in slavery with a full menu. Being in the wilderness with only manna to eat is far better because that is where God communes with his people In the fellowship of the covenant, free from enemy threat. And so the fact that they complained about the manna, that is not mere expression of food preference. Complaining about the manna means that they despised the grace of God in redeeming them from Egypt and providing for them on the way to the promised land, the type and shadow and copy of heaven on earth. And so Israel's grumbling led to their judgment. It's as if God says to Israel later on in Numbers chapter 11, you want to eat meat instead of manna? Well, I will give you so much meat it will come out your nostrils, so much that you will be sick of it. And the sinfulness of sin is on display when God gives us over to what our corrupt hearts desire. And all of this is instructive for us as we deal with complaining and grumbling as we see Paul Brings it up here in Philippians chapter 2. Think of a parallel passage. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about how all these things, Israel's life, their complaining in the wilderness and their judgment for their complaining, happened as warnings for us. The sin and judgment of the old covenant church is a warning for the new covenant church to heed today. 1 Corinthians 10.6 these things, all that Israel experienced in grumbling and, and judgment for their grumbling, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 1 Corinthians 10, 9 and 10. We must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And so all of this leads us to consider that complaining reveals a heart that has not experienced grace and a heart that has not experienced grace is headed for judgment. Once again, complaining reveals a heart that has not experienced grace, and a heart that has not experienced grace is headed for judgment. And not only are we in the new covenant today to avoid the grumbling and judgment of Israel, seeing their negative example and living otherwise, More so, we are to take advantage of the greater grace that is ours now that the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished redemption in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Whereas Moses led the one nation of God out of the enslaving power of Egypt under Pharaoh into God's presence on earthly Mount Sinai, how much greater is it that Jesus Christ has led his people from all nations out of the enslaving power of sin under Satan into God's presence on heavenly Mount Zion. Believer, you and I have witnessed and have experienced far more of God's grace than Israel did. In terms of John's prologue, Israel experienced grace, but we have experienced grace upon grace. The end of the ages has come upon us. Christ has accomplished redemption He has established his kingdom of grace. Satan has received a mortal wound from which he cannot recover. Because of all this, then, we have far greater reason to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Israel complained and rejected God's grace, and so they received God's wrath, and the same is true today. If we complain and reject God's grace, we will receive God's righteous wrath. But it's more than this. You and I have witnessed more of God's grace than Israel did, and that means that we must take with utmost gravity this biblical principle, there is greater wrath for rejecting greater grace. But that awesome biblical principle has a flip side. There is greater blessing for receiving greater grace. Since you and I have witnessed more of God's grace than Israel did, That means that we have all the more reason to live in gratitude to God for His amazing grace. It's been suggested that complaining has three elements, and these are not original with me. First, complaining reveals that we want life to be free of obstacles. We want life to be free of obstacles. I exist to be served, not to serve. Other people exist to give me what I want. Secondly, Complaining reveals a desire for a life without any need to trust in the Lord, independence of the Lord. We want to have everything figured out and have it all together. We want to be self-sufficient and independent of the Creator. Thirdly, a lifestyle of complaining seeks life in creation rather than in the Creator. We think that something outside of Christ can provide happiness and satisfaction and pleasure. And then, of course, it doesn't provide these things, and so we grumble and complain. By contrast, grumbling's opposite, gratitude, has three elements as well. First of all, gratitude rests in God's presence. Even though Israel was in the lifeless wilderness, they were still overshadowed and led by the living God. And how much better is it for us We know so much more of God's grace than Israel did because Christ has already come. He's already accomplished redemption for us and brought us into his kingdom. We rest all the more so in God's presence in Jesus Christ today. Secondly, gratitude rests in God's power. It was precisely in the midst of the dried-up wasteland of the wilderness that Israel should have appreciated the otherworldly power of God in providing for them all that they needed in their pilgrimage. And we know more of God's power than Israel did because we know Christ crucified and raised from the dead who lives by the power of an indestructible life, Hebrews chapter 7. And thirdly, gratitude is aware of God's grace. A heart of complaining insists on its own way, but a heart of gratitude realizes I shouldn't have my own way because I do not know what is best. And even if I did know what is best, I don't deserve to have my own way because I'm a hell-deserving sinner. A heart of gratitude knows that it is a good thing that I am not in charge and that God is because God is God and I am a claimless creature of the dust. And so we, we here have a specific aspect of sanctification— putting off grumbling and disputing, and by implication, cultivating gratitude. And then Paul goes on to tell us the purpose for all this. Look, look in at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So verse 15 provides the reason for the command in verse 14. Why should you avoid grumbling and complaining, believer? Because you, with your brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, are children of God. This is the benefit of adoption in union with Jesus Christ. We mentioned briefly in our Catechism review. Think of Shorter Catechism 34. Adoption is an act of God's free grace... Whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Adoption also means that we have an inheritance. Not like we perhaps ordinarily think of an inheritance, not the kind of impersonal inheritance written in a last will and testament to be received upon someone's death and to be used in their absence. Adoption means we have a living inheritance the living God himself. Romans eight seventeen. if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God. To be a child of God, Romans eight seventeen means to have God as your inheritance now and in the future. What is truly great about being a child of God is having God, having him as our blessedness and reward, our treasure now and in the fullness, in fullness in the age to come. This is one of the countless gifts of God in Jesus Christ. And all of God's gifts are unto the task. Gift first, followed by the task. That is the thrust of Paul's logic here in Philippians. Since you are God's child by faith in Christ, be who you are. Live up to the family name. When you can make Psalm 73, 25 and 26 your own, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When this is your prayer, then more and more grumbling goes away. Paul packs in more Old Testament imagery here in verse 15. Listen to how similar verse 15 is to how Moses speaks to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 32 verse 5. This is Moses in Deuteronomy 32. They have dealt corruptly with him, with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you hear that same kind of language of being children, blemished, crooked and twisted generation there, similar to to Deuteronomy 32? There in in the Song of Moses, there is a contrast between God's faithfulness and Israel's wickedness. In response to the mighty, fatherly, faithful, and righteous works of God, Israel was a corrupt and ungrateful child and people. As Paul here in verse 15 alludes to the Song of Moses, commanding us to be blameless and unlike the crooked generation we find ourselves in, the point I think is simply this learn from the deadly ways of Israel. Even though God showed Israel his grace, Israel complained against him and rejected his grace. By their grumbling, the people of Israel showed that they were not true children of God. Instead, they were a blemished, crooked, and twisted generation. Rather than being heavenly-minded, they had their hearts set on what is earthly. But you, on the other hand, you who have known the grace of God in Jesus Christ... Be true children of God. If you know God as your heavenly father, then live as his children. Be holy in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Discontentedness, insisting on your own way, looking out for your own interests, this characterizes the age from which you've been redeemed. But humility, selflessness, unity, this characterizes God's kingdom, And it characterizes the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ, who obeyed unto death on a cross that he may be the firstborn among his brothers and sisters. After the Exodus, after that great display of God's grace and power for Israel, Israel showed that they did not experience God's grace in their hearts. They grumbled and complained in the wilderness. And as we saw, complaining reveals a heart that has not experienced grace and a heart that has not experienced grace is headed for judgment. Even though they were part of the people of God, even though they were in the church, Israel's complaining revealed that they were actually worldly. They may have been members of the church, but their hearts had not been changed. How much more so should that be a warning to us? You may attend worship. You may have received baptism, live in a Christian home, But has your heart been changed? Have you received a living heart, having replaced your heart of stone? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Psalm 34, 8. Are you in the church, but actually of the world? It is possible to have an external association with Christ without actually knowing Christ. By contrast, Paul is telling us here, believer, it is possible to be in the world, but not of it in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, show that you are different. Show why you are different. You are a child of the living God. Show this sin-cursed world that you live in, this is not your home. You belong to another world. You belong to your Father in heaven. Show them that grace is so powerful that it transforms grumblers into the grateful. Paul adds another Old Testament image to all this. What else do the children of God do in this sin-cursed world? The end of verse 15, they shine as lights in the world. As opposed to the darkness of this crooked and twisted generation, the children of God, by faith in Christ, shine as lights. This reference to shining as lights is a reference to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12 is a revelation of the future, the very end of history. At that point, at the end of history, the resurrection from the dead will take place. God's true people will be raised from the dead and enter into everlasting life. And then in Daniel 12, verse 3, it says that God's true people shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars forever and ever. So, in the resurrection from the dead, God's true people are described as shining like the stars in a dark sky. The resurrection brings God's people into a heavenly mode of existence. This heavenly life is one of radiant brilliance, such that wherever there is darkness, those who are raised from the dead will shine like stars in that darkness. In the resurrection, believers will will reflect the glory of heaven itself. Now, here's what's interesting, or more of what's interesting. Paul is saying there in verse 15 that we are to shine as lights in the world right now, present tense. But how is that possible? How can you and I shine as lights in the world now if that can't happen until the resurrection takes place? It's simple, because the resurrection has begun. Resurrection life is not just a future hope it is a present possession for the believer. We who are dead in trespasses and sins have been raised with Jesus Christ and seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We have resurrection life in union with Jesus Christ right now on the inside, and we await the fullness of that resurrection life when Christ returns, when that life will be ours bodily and in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. But Paul is focusing here on the present, the future hope described in Daniel 12 has begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And union with Christ in his resurrection gives us that same kind of life that he himself has. He is not only the possessor of resurrection life, he is the conveyor of it as well to those who trust in him. Second Corinthians 5:17: "If anyone is in Christ. He is new creation. He is a member of the new creation already. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Life is now manifest in a world of death. Light is manifest in a world of darkness. And just as life will stand out in the midst of death, and just as light will shine in the darkness, so also will those who belong to the heavenly man, Jesus Christ, display resurrection light in a darkened and sin-cursed world. Since we as God's children have resurrection life now, that is how we are able to shine as lights in the world, as Paul puts it here. So more and more, we will put off grumbling and put on gratitude. We will put off bitterness and put on forgiveness. We will put off selfishness and put on selflessness. We will put off pride and put on humble service. Maybe you're asking how this all sounds well and good, but what do we do about that? It's a fair question. It makes sense that we should shine as lights in a dark world. We should be who we are, but what does it look like? Paul answers that in verse 16, beginning of verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. So if we were to ask Paul, how do I live out the resurrection life I have now in Jesus? Answer. Cling to the words of God, the Bible. This needs a lot more attention, and I give you food for thought here. Not only is the Bible the word of the living God, those typical proof texts we appeal to—Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, Second Peter one nineteen to twenty peter 19 to 21 the Bible is not the word of man, but it is the God-breathed Scripture. Not only is the Bible the living word of the living God, Hebrews 4.12, more than that, the Bible is the life-giving word of the living and life-giving God. That is how Paul describes God's word here in verse 16. It is the word of life. The Bible is God's word which leads to life, which gives life. And since we have been given resurrection life by faith in Christ now, it is by means of holding fast to the word of life that we display the life we've been given. The message of the gospel leads to resurrection life for all who believe it. The Bible is the word of resurrection life, and all who trust in God's word actually possess the heavenly life that God gives through it. How amazing is God's word? Not just that it is God's word, but that God through his word gives new life from the dead and that we live out that new life by holding fast to it. Think of how we see this throughout scripture, how heavenly life is communicated for an earthly work or an earthly pilgrimage. Think of Deuteronomy 8, how Israel, God's son, God's national son, They were sustained by God's word throughout their wilderness wanderings. God reminds them there in Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 and following, Your shoes did not wear out those 40 years, but you lived by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. Not because they had really good shoes they didn't wear out, but because in holding to the law given at Sinai, Because they held to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, heavenly life was communicated to them for their earthly pilgrimage. Think of how Jesus Christ fulfills this in Matthew chapter 4 and and Luke chapter 4 in his withstanding the temptation of the evil one. Jesus Christ, the ultimate son, after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, when Satan comes to him in his first temptation to the 2nd and last Adam, Jesus Christ— If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? You've been going so long without food, maybe a doctor would say that's a bad thing to do. You made the body this way, didn't you, Jesus? To be fed by food, not to go this long without natural nourishment. You can change stones into bread, can't you? Why don't you display that power and turn these stones into bread and then live off of them? Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? What does Jesus say in response? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So how is Jesus in his human nature sustained when he is skin and bones 40 days and 40 nights into his fast. How is he sustained in his earthly work to procure salvation for sinners like you and me? He is sustained in his human nature, receiving heavenly help by holding on to, holding fast to the word of life. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God was the food of the Lord Jesus Christ that enabled him to persevere through his earthly pilgrimage and work, to withstand the temptation of the evil one, and it enabled him to go all the way to the cursed death of the cross and be victorious to crush the serpent's head and bring us into everlasting glory and joy. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God sustained Jesus Christ And every word that proceeds from the mouth of God sustains those in union with Jesus Christ as we look to his word of life to walk in the life he's given us all the way to the fullness of that life when we see Jesus face to face and are made conformable to his glorious resurrection body to dwell with him in the place he has prepared for us. Do you see how powerful this book is? We do not stand for the truth of God's Word for social impact alone, to say that we are conservative Presbyterians alone. We stand for the truth of this Word because it gives life, and it sustains life all the way to the fullness of that heavenly life when we see Jesus face to face. In the Word of God, there is communication of heavenly life to us in and for our earthly pilgrimage. It is God's word that sustains us in our weakness, enabling us to walk in the newness of life we have already received. Christ, the life-giving Savior, speaks to us in his life-giving word that we may run the race set before us all the way to the finishing line, all the way to our heavenly home, all the way to glory. There is much here, and I'll try to summarize it in this way. As God's children, having received new life through God's word, let us reflect God's glory with gratitude. That's a mouthful, but it just shows something of how Paul wants us to know how amazing, something of how amazing our privileges are in Christ so that we can more and more be who we are in Christ. If you are a Christian, you will be different from the sin-cursed world we find ourselves in. Listen to the counsel of Wilhelmus Brockel: You are children of God. You do not belong here, but in the other world. Heaven is not your home, and there you are children. Wouldn't a child be loyal to his father and oppose his enemies? Wouldn't a child honor, fear, love, and serve his father, and be fully in harmony with his father's will and his manners and the company he keeps? Therefore, since you are children of God, conduct yourselves as children. Let everything observe Let everyone observe in your walk that you are a stranger upon earth, belong at home in heaven, that God is your Father, and that you are children of God. As we close, we can focus in walking out that adoption identity, being children of God in Jesus Christ, we can focus on holding fast to the word of life to live out that identity. Focus on the word of life God uses the message of the gospel from his word to grant newness of life to sinners who trust in him. And he continues to use his word to enable us to walk in that life. So let us use God's word. Read the word. Listen to it on your phone. Write a verse on a sticky note and put it on the mirror that you will see it more and more. Read it in set times and spare moments. God's word is the word of resurrection life. God's word illumines dark minds. It sanctifies hearts. It converts. It regenerates. It penetrates and lays bare the secret things of the heart. It strengthens us so that we might be able to withstand the world, the flesh, and the devil. It comforts and guides. The word of life that God used to save you is the same word of life that God uses to sanctify you. John seventeen seventeen. sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is in this word of life that we hear the voice of the risen Savior speaking to us, conforming us to his glorious image, enabling us to live out the resurrection life he has given already. Listen to his voice here in his word, and that will enable you to reflect his glory in a dark world, showing that you are a true child of the living and life-giving God. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word of life.